Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, everyone. Amy Keene here. I want to let you know that Alpha Chat's going to be taking a break for the next few weeks. We're working on some really exciting new interviews along with some brand new hosts. So keep us in your feed and we'll be back before you know it. And we're going to leave you with a short parting gift of sorts before we go on this brief hiatus. It's an episode from a new FT podcast called Behind the Money. And it's hosted by me, Amy Keene. Each week, with the help of my colleagues and sometimes even their sources, we dig into some of the big business and financial stories of the moment and get into the stories behind the headlines or the story behind the money. You can find the show wherever you get the rest of your podcasts, including Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And the episode of Behind the Money that we're bringing you today is about co-working company WeWork and how it really works. In 2010, Adam Newman and his partner Miguel McKelvey set up a company with the small goal of changing the way people work. They leased some space in an office building in New York, did some renovations, and turned around and rented out the updated space to new tenants. Eight years later, WeWork has opened buildings, or what they like to call communities, in more than 60 cities. After a recent round of investment from SoftBank's Vision Fund, the company is reportedly valued at $20 billion. And throughout all of these years, we've had very little understanding of how WeWork actually operates, how much it brings in in revenue, what its expenses are like, and so on. It's a private company, and so it's not required to publicly report these details. But in April, WeWork issued a round of bonds, and its financial statements were made available. And it was the first time we got the chance to look inside the operations of one of the highest-valued startups in the world. So this is a, a company uh, founded back in 2010 with a so, uh, relatively simple uh, business model, which is to uh, to rent offices, uh, office buildings from from large landlords, and to sublet them to uh, to smaller businesses, to divide them up and make them look a bit more funky, put some bells and whistles around them, and then effectively sell them off for for a higher price to other people. That's the voice of FT Companies editor Dan Thomas. He's also covered the global property market for many years. This is by far and away not a new idea. This has been going on for decades, if not if not longer. This is a very old-fashioned real estate play. Many companies have been doing it in the past. In the UK, for example, was a company called IWG, who uh, used to be, or uh, well, still are sometimes known as Regis because they, they run the Regis brand, have got a vast network and portfolio of, of properties around the world where they, where they do just this. The thing that WeWork brought to the table was a kind of sense of, uh, you know, that kind of Silicon Valley pizzazz, the excitement, the the marketing, and, and indeed the technology, which they talk about quite quite a lot, the ability to offer their uh, the, the people within their buildings the opportunity to mix with each other, to have business relationships with each other, to get to know each other. They provide amenities which weren't necessarily common place uh you know seven years ago free coffee free beer even in some uh, some locations you know and it's, it takes it a bit above the sort of traditional sense of beanbags and uh, ping pong tables at least here's mr newman in an interview with the ft from 2015 
A lot of times people ask me if we compete against co-working spaces or against Regis, and the answer is no. We're competing against office. We're changing the way people work. And, and if there was a company that was going to change the way people work, investors wanted in. WeWork attracted uh, you know, quite a vast array of, of, of early uh, tech startup type investors uh, from the venture capitalist side, as well as uh, a little bit later on from SoftBank, or SoftBank's Vision Fund anyway, which is this uh, you know, vast fund uh, designed to set up to invest in the technology sector. The interesting thing were, was that these, these investors come in thinking that this is a technology player. This is, this is a kind of the, you know, the property model of the future. It's, it's got a typical growth sector strategy, which is you, you build it and then you scale it up as quickly as possible and as soon as possible. So we saw WeWork you know, double the um, number of locations it has around the world last year. They have plans to do so again to about 400 locations. And this is just a scale game. They want to they populate uh, the major cities around the world with WeWorks. And, and eventually, uh, the hope is that these, 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 these properties will turn a profit. So if you were looking at this the way you would a real estate company and not a tech company, how does it compare? Well, the, the real estate industry uh, regards WeWork with, with a huge amount of suspicion, mostly because it, it, to, to them it's just taking a very old-fashioned idea of, uh, of subleasing buildings to, uh, to, to tenants um, and, and sort of adding a sort of veneer of uh, kind of technology respectability to it. The thing that everyone warns about is over time, the property cycle has a sort of momentum. You have a peak and a, and a trough, a very defined peak and trough, roughly every 10 to 15 years around the world, history would suggest. And uh, right now, the, the property markets probably near or how or even in some places probably reached a uh, cyclical top so what the danger is here and what property experts and property investors would be worried about particularly in, in relation to backing we work right now uh, would be that that we work so effectively taking leases on these large buildings and then uh, and then subletting them at the moment for a little bit more but should the market turn they'll be on the hook for say uh, 15 20 year leases and they won't be able to get the returns because their own tenants will be starting to demand lower rents uh, than they're paying at the moment uh, because there might be a cyclical downturn. They can find office rents elsewhere for much cheaper. And the problem is that this is a relatively uh, low barriers to entry market as well. So, I mean, all it takes is one building down the road to to so put a 20% discount on their office uh, rents and suddenly they look much more attractive to tenants which can move very quickly that you know these are these are companies which typically have maybe a year on their contract maybe a longer but even so they can move in relatively short order which means they can move down the road very quickly and it can leave a building such as the vast ones that we tend to take it can leave them quite empty quite quickly that is the worst case scenario they would argue on the other hand which uh, I've heard them say it, uh, that you know the, the reason why people would would naturally stay in their buildings is, is because of the technology um, advantages they offer, the you know the extra sort of amenities, the community around it. Who makes up the bulk of their tenants? WeWork has traditionally attracted a, a, a number of or quite a number of smaller businesses. Inevitably, that's that's what shared office space is all about. You know, you don't tend to uh, want to have the big floor plates. You're you're literally looking for maybe a, a few desks to a to a to a few tens of desks. But the thing is, uh, they have been trying to shift um, and aggressively shift into the, the larger corporate space. And they're trying to do that by offering, you know, the large banks, let's call it, let's say City, for example. They'll go to City and say, well, you have got a large building up the road. That's yours, of course. But why don't you have a breakout team which comes and sits with effectively the kids because they, they tend to be younger, uh, uh, you know, younger tenants in their buildings. And, you know, they're sort of saying, well, these guys are the ones that are sparking the ideas for, for the future. And it would, it would benefit for you if you took, you took some space in our offices as well. And they're also trying to pivot into offering uh, more traditional asset management services to these, these companies as well. 
by saying, look, we can take on running uh, maybe an, a floor, maybe uh, two floors, maybe a building on your behalf and using our skills uh, in order to do that. But I mean, the thing is, actually, the tr- some of the more kind of cliched or, or sort of uh, maybe traditional tenants of WeWork, the very small startups, the um, the really early stage uh, uh, firms, they're almost being priced out of the market because WeWork is not cheap, not cheap compared to many of its competitors down the road who are now setting up shop anyway. And you can get cheaper office space, generally speaking, if you're a small startup, which, you know, with a with a, with a couple of beanbags in a corner and a coffee machine can replicate the, uh, the WeWork experience fairly accurately. So this is what WeWork's been up to, aggressively growing its footprint in major cities around the world. And just a couple of weeks ago, we finally got to see whether the company was in a position to turn a profit anytime soon. I talked to my colleague Alex Skaggs, who's been poring over the statements for the FT. Alex, okay. when you first heard that WeWork was issuing bonds, what did, what did you do? What did you look for? So the first thing that went through my mind was I have to get my hands on this prospectus. And a prospectus is a document that the company sends out to the people who might buy its bonds uh, just so they can sort of look at the company. It includes all of the company's financial metrics and the ways that these investors are going to like evaluate the investment and the company. Alex said the prospectus was about 260 pages long. So I'll cut to the chase and tell you the three numbers she immediately looked for. The first was assets and whether the company owns anything that a bond investor might be able to lay claim to if WeWork's not able to repay its debt. Uh, So what I found was that WeWork doesn't really own very much, Um, you know, because its basic model, like like we said, was was that it leases out buildings over the long term and then rents them out short term. The vast majority of what it actually has on its balance sheet are leases and leases don't actually involve like a claim over any asset. The second thing she looked for was the net profit or loss. WeWork's bottom line. So people had reported that the company was loss making, that it hadn't turned an official profit. But we didn't know just how big the losses were. And they've reported that a a few different ways. But, you know, the very top line level, I guess, of this report was almost a billion dollars, which is a lot of money. Um, That was actually more than their revenue for the whole year. So they lost, I think, about $933 million for 2017. And the reason for the loss of this scale is largely because of the company's rapid growth. They're expanding to new cities, opening up new buildings, and all of that is quite expensive. Which brings us to the third item, cash. How much cash WeWork has after accounting for its operations, the money that's coming in and out of WeWork, and how much of it stays within the company in order for it to pay taxes and the interest on its debt. WeWork has coined their calculation of this community-adjusted EBITDA. So in the prospectus, it is funny because they do seem to sort of um, use this as a way to show like, hey, our business is really good. We'll have plenty of cash, you guys. Um, But in order to do that, they actually take out a lot of expenses. And these expenses are substantial and they really matter for the company's global operations. I mean, they're global sales, um, you know, their their entire staff and business that's dedicated to opening up new buildings, um, they take that out entirely. They take out all of the expenses for all the buildings that haven't opened yet. Basically, what they're trying to do is figure out how, like for a, for a location that's already open and operating, they're trying to figure out how profitable are these. And in doing so, I guess they're stripping out the costs associated with growing today, the actual cost of the expanding operation. Exactly. Um, So they are expanding very fast. 
And before they open these buildings, obviously, they aren't bringing in membership revenue, which, you know, in order to sort of get that amount of membership revenue, they have to bring in a lot of people to sell the memberships and they have to actually renovate the buildings a lot of times. And so they have this sort of decent sized stock of buildings that has that haven't actually opened up yet. And so because of that, um, those things are kind of expensive. So that um, that really weighed on their profits. Another question I had for Alex was why WeWork was going to the debt market now. So WeWork had been getting cash from equity issuance, which is basically saying, okay, you can have a stake in my business if you give me some money. Um, And it had these credit lines open with banks at the same time, which is basically just going to the bank and saying, hey, I'll... You, you can lend to me and I'll pay you back interest. Um, and so it actually said in its documents that it wasn't able to borrow that much more money from banks as of the end of last year. And at the same time, you have to imagine that shareholders, you know, they don't want more shareholders with them, right? Like it's it's this idea of shareholder dilution, which is basically that, you know, the more shares you issue, the smaller ownership stake every existing shareholder has. Alex, you've characterized a company that might not on paper be your typical debt issuer. They've got minimal assets, limited cash flow. Who invested in this debt? So the funny thing is, I can't actually say a lot about the people who bought this debt because I had a lot of trouble finding them. Um, A lot of debt investors who I spoke to said, "Uh, not for us. Because it's like not a typical bond offering, um, typical bond investors do not seem to like this credit very much. Um, You know, the, the bonds actually in the secondary market, which means like the place that investors trade bonds after they've already been issued. Um, it's been trading at about 93 cents on the dollar, which this soon after an offering is almost unheard of. So it's not the kind of debt traditional bond investors are looking to get their hands on. And you might ask why this matters. It's a private company. But Alex told me that a lot of analysts would consider this a trial balloon for an IPO. WeWork's chief executive has been quite open about the idea of taking WeWork public in the near future. So working with a bank on the debt issuance, testing investor reaction, the company might be slowly wading into the waters. Dan, given what we've seen from their financials so far, how would you say WeWork would fare under the scrutiny of reporting quarterly earnings and answering to public shareholders? I think WeWork would struggle slightly in the public market right now. I think um, the uh, the information that that the uh, the company disclosed to the market after the bond issuance was enough to really um, really kind of concern some people and certainly surprise some people about you know how much money the the company was burning through you know the level of profitability that that it was uh, aiming for within its um, existing business and indeed how much it didn't tell us for example they um they disclosed that they they wrote off a 30 million investment in 2016 for a partial stake in a company that we didn't actually say which company this was uh although some people i think have linked it with the um the purchase of a of a, a company um from spain which uh, builds and operates wave pools for surfing which uh, happens to be a hobby of uh, the chief executive, uh, Mr. Newman. So, I mean, a few, you know, there have been sort of um, skeptics out there who say that that you know that's if that is true that that this that this money was was spent on effectively a surfboard indoor surf company, then uh, that's not uh, money that well spent potentially. And so, this is not the sort of behaviour which would necessarily 
be uh, seen as favourable within the public markets. Saying that, you know, uh, the, the equity markets are, are, are always um, capable of surprising and indeed capable of, uh, of backing, uh, you know, ambitious people with great visions uh, and uh, and potentially in a couple of years' time, these these two hundred extra uh, units which are which are opening in the next year, they could be turning a profit. So, you know, it's not impossible to see WeWork turn a corner pretty quickly in order to get to the public markets should it want to. And there's a bigger bet here that I want to understand, and that's what else the company is, I guess, looking to disrupt. What it is that SoftBank and its Vision Fund along with other venture capital, what are they interested in? Adam Newman uh, and indeed his wife, who takes a, a strong um, has a strong voice in this business, uh, both see themselves as much more than providing uh, shared offices here. You know, they really want to, uh, you know, they want to reinvent the workplace, reinvent the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the urban space as much as anything else. They want to take control to some degree, you know, of, of the living space that perhaps workers will work in, as well as their offices. And indeed, uh, you know, things alongside it on the social side, so they can really, uh, you know, uh, really address what, what some people are calling the we generation, where, or what he likes to call the we generation, you know, who really wants to do cool things and, and actually likes to go to work um this is uh, this is not this is this is not necessarily a bad idea you know you can kind of see the the reason why they would want to do this i mean it's a vast and impressive vision of how people will be working in the future which is that you know they're no longer wanting to go from a nine to five job and uh, and head home to the suburbs and so it's kind of it's, it's, it's more of a it's more of a sort of kind of conceptual idea about where where the world is heading to and that's really where SoftBank comes in, because I mean they've been huge supporters of the company. And if you uh, if you ever read interviews with the um, the executives running uh, uh, SoftBank, you know they're hugely excited about the opportunity to back a company which has these ambitions. They don't want to back a, a shared office provider. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, you know, off much smaller valuations. It has to be said, but at the same time, with much less idea about how the future is going to work out. If WeWork is right, and and, and this is the sort of next. Uh, the kind of next uh, the revolution in how people work and live, then they are going to be right at the vanguard of that. They're going to have you know four hundred, five hundred, six hundred, and so on places around the world where they can offer this. If we look at the big figures in this story, a seven hundred and two million dollar bond issuance, a valuation of twenty billion dollars. How are you thinking about what this company is? I think WeWork needs to be positioned not next to Regis, but uh, more importantly next to some company like Tesla. Uh, who equally are seen off a, a vast valuation, uh, but are equally burning through uh, stacks of cash in order to get to where they need to get to to make money. So it's 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 just a, a, a real bet on the vision of Adam Newman and whether or not come. 2025 2030 there's a real shift in how people live and work but growth for its own sake clearly is never going to be uh is never going to be enough eventually the company will have to turn a profit we'll have to show that its strategy is a uh it's a sustainable one not just for three to five years but through the 15 20 year cycle of their leases and beyond and only then can they say that actually this has been a successful company at the moment it's a very exciting company it has fantastic marketing has some great technology behind it undoubtedly but at the moment it needs to prove that it can be there for the long term
Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today, because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.